Okay, so welcome to uh, uh, New Hope Community Church live and live stream. We're okay with live stream to all those people out there live stream. It's great to have everybody worshiping with us. The kids can sneak on out if there's any kids still in here. I think uh, Kim may have already rescued them. But okay, so uh, one thing that wasn't in the bulletin we forgot to put in was the first Friday. Is this coming Friday? The prayer for life this Friday. And if you have any uh, any questions, Terry, give a wave, Terry. See Terry if you have any questions. And, and there is a free lunch. Afterward, anybody comes, there's a free lunch, so uh, that's on Friday. Uh, next week, we're going to be back in Romans 5. Next week, Romans 5, but today we have something special, a special service, uh, really based around Camp Haycock and their leadership uh, leadership group that they run for the summer, which a lot, a lot of our young men have been part of, and some are going to be sharing today. And then it's going to end up with Mike. Mike will be sharing a sermon. So uh, you're, you're here for a historic uh, a, a sermon here, first one. All right, but we're going to start off with a video, just a little video clip to kind of show you what is involved in this ministry. So, you love it like radiant diamond bursting inside of we cannot contain. Your love will surely come find us like blazing wildfire, singing your name, God of Jay, how was that? It felt like Great. it felt like I was gonna throw up. All right, Adam. How was that? Hard. What? Hard. Oh yeah. It was worth it. Yes. How was that? It was painfully amazing. Caleb, tell me how how that ascent was. Your <laughs> name.
Young men in that one? Caleb was in it. Yeah, Caleb. <laughs> All right, that was him without the beard. All right, so that was Caleb. So, uh, so this year, Andrew, my son Andrew, was part of this program. So he passionately volunteered to come up and share what he got out of it. So, All right, so come on up, buddy. Hello. Hi, I'm Andrew. I did LGP this year. And in LGP, you learn a lot about just basic things like survivals, survival uh, uh, tactics, stuff like that. We learned how to like tie knots. But one of the biggest things I've learned at LGP was just relying on God at all times because during the runs and stuff, like we don't know how long we're gonna we don't know how far the runs are. We don't really know where we're going. Like for like the hike, like they don't tell us how long we're gonna be going for. So we just have to rely on God and yeah, that's it. So since Andrew completed this, when they, my boys, usually when they turn 18, I give them a sword to represent the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But since he did this LGP uh, leadership thing, and since he also volunteered to speak at this, as you can see, uh, I decided to give him his sword even earlier. And he picked out, well, I'm, I'm running out of swords. This is my seventh son, so I'm running out of swords. But, uh, but uh, he picked this one out. Come on up. Come on up. He picked out, tell him what you picked out. You can pull it out. Tell him what it is. I don't even know what it is. It's a ninja, the ninja sword. He picked out the ninja sword. So that's his uh, sword of the spirit to remind him of all the things he learned here. And don't take it out after you get out of here. Okay, so I saw some little guys eyeing it earlier. So, all right. All right. So thanks, buddy. And then... And then also... Uh, I've asked Caleb to share because, come on up, Caleb. Caleb was our original pioneer. He was the first one to ever do uh, LGP. And so, and also, he didn't stop there. After LGP, he went into something else, and I'll let you explain that. So. Okay. Yeah, so I, uh, I did not volunteer, as you know. <laughs> uh, but what LGP is, yeah, it's six weeks, six uh, physical hardship is the first three, and then the last three are like apprenticeship. They show you how to run the camp. You're a counselor. You either clean the kitchen, you clean around camp, you do hard stuff. I mean, the maintenance worker tells you to do just about anything. Anything that breaks, you just go help them fix it. Um, but starting out, you know, they tell you, oh, we're going to do a camp tour. What do you think of a cantor? It's nice, right? You know, you're walking around happy. Not so. Um, you're running through the woods. You're getting scratches on your legs from the thorn bushes. You're, you're, you know, you're swimming through the lake covered in mud. Uh, but then they wash you off and take a picture. Uh, <laughs> and then the two things they give you after that is they give you a hat and they give you a, a pretty necklace. Pretty necklace. Uh, it's a it's a rope like a this rope is like scratchy and every you know it's around your neck but it has uh, Colossians three one through sixteen right around your neck and you're supposed to memorize it um, at the end of six weeks and you know you have to say to the group so once you memorize it, it takes you out you know you can do it in two days or you can do it in two weeks you know 
Um, but the the hat, you don't lose a hat because if you lose a hat, then you're in big trouble. Um, they make you do like certain things to get it back. Uh, the one, <laughs> I think I only lost my hat once. And the one thing I had to do was I had to, I had to, they put my hat at the bottom of the pool and I had to go down to the bottom of the pool, but I also had to bring up like a 10 pound weight or 15 pound weight. And I was like, it took me like, I don't know, 10 tries. I had to keep going back up down. The, yeah, it was, uh, I said, oh, never again. I lose my hat. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about Stan. Stan. Yeah. yeah so Stan for you. Right? Yeah. yeah. So um, Stan was the program basically after that, um, where you turn like 21 or I think they have an age limit to like 26. But uh, basically what Stan is, it's a, it's a much longer program, a year-long program. Um, and you get uh, college credits towards for this, so there are classes involved, and you know, homework and writing all that stuff. Um, but we do a lot of like missions trips to like we went to like Nicaragua uh, for a week, and I mean, we basically just helped them like build like stuff. Like we we would mix the cement. And the way they do that is they pour they pour the cement on the pavement. And instead of, like, we usually have, like, mixtures here, but we would put the water in the cement, and then we'd, like, shovel it, and it took us, like, 30 minutes to mix the cement. And uh, it was difficult. But um, the other thing we did, we went to uh, uh, the, rock or the Rock Ministries in uh, Kensington, and that was, you know, a lot different. You know, we would be doing street ministry and a lot of talking to, you know, people who are, on drugs and people who aren't really listening to you and you're either sleeping or you know in the clouds um, so that was hard and we would pray with them um, but yeah I mean we we worked at camp all summer long uh, and it was uh, it was reference well, the, the stand ref the the acronym stand uh, is uh, one of the things that they teach you. So, yeah, I mean. Super. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. So we've all followed, you know, he's the pioneer with not just LGP, but also STAN. So anybody wants any information on that? It's like really like a gap year for college. A lot of young men do this for a gap year. You get college credits, but learn a lot of ministry, discipleship, real intense. So there's our first two. And our last one is Michael, uh, who you know, Michael. And he's been, went from, followed Caleb to the camp. And then he worked at the camp. And now he's been leading leadership growth program. So I'll let him take it from here and then take it right into the word of God. Okay. I would just thank you for Michael and, and Caleb and Andrew and just pray that you uh, just would give uh, Michael your mercy and grace to really open your word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty. How does this work? Just leave it? All right. So I'm Michael Wilson, Pastor Chuck's fifth son, um, and I'm a history major at Karen University. I'll be entering my junior year today. Uh, I go back to school after this. And you might be thinking, why is a history major preaching to us today? Uh, don't worry, I'm thinking the same thing. Uh, 
I've been at Haycock uh, every summer since 2018. I did LGP that year and been working there since 2019. And I've had the chance of leading the leadership growth program for the past three summers now. It's been a lot of fun, very hard at times, very, very hard, but a lot of joy and long-lasting memories come from it. And the title of my sermon today is The Futil- Futility of Idolatry. We talk about in Jeremiah. Uh, An LGP provides a little picture of what life entails, uh, responsibilities, dealing with hardships, and all different things they have to deal with. And there's one great temptation that every LGP faces, uh, and, and it's a temptation that many of us struggle with in life, and that is when they're in LGP, they're stripped of all their comforts. They don't have their family. They don't, they don't have their friends. They don't even have free time. They're really stripped of their, even their individual identity. And part of the goal of this is for them to learn to depend on God alone throughout. But as in life, they're tempted to trust in other things to get them through the hardship. You know, a big thing they do is if I just make, if I could just make it to the next meal, if I could just make it to bed, if I could just make it to the showers, if I just finish this run, they make their next activity their goal to complete. Uh, and that's not a bad thing per se, but the problem is, is that they begin to rely on these goals to get them through hardship. They become more reliant on getting through, getting to the next field instead of realizing that God's the one who's bringing them through the whole thing. God gives them every step they take and every breath they breathe. They rely on something that's fleeting, that's something that goes away. Because when you fall asleep, what happens? You wake up again, you have to restart. So relying on these little things doesn't actually get you through it uh, properly. It just flees. It doesn't satisfy you. But don't we do this in life on a much larger scale? Don't we all begin to trust in the things of this world to provide comfort, to provide comfort and happiness for us when times are going great and when times aren't great? We start trusting in all these things. We turn to entertainment to drown out our worries and problems. We turn to sports, TV, social media, food, relationships, hobbies, sleep, and everything else under the sun to satisfy us. We expect to be satisfied with the things of this world only to realize that no lasting satisfaction actually comes. We forget about God, the one who's sustaining us throughout everything, the one who has knit us in our mother's womb and who controls all things, the one who's watching over us and who loves us deeply. We create our own idols to comfort us, but then we realize our idols cannot fulfill us. And this is where Jeremiah's indictment on Judah, I think, is important for us to consider. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for today. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word, that you would Open and convict our hearts, um, and help us to see you more clearly in the turn to Jesus and know him better. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, let me drink real quick. So, just some quick points to help us understand Jeremiah's time period. I'm a history major, so all this boring background stuff is kind of necessary to understand things. So, I'm going to, you can show the map. So Israel in this time, you have the blue kingdoms, Israel, and the, I don't even know that, pinkish salmon colors, Judah. So Israel during Jeremiah's time is split apart. If you don't know that, Israel uh, was split apart. They split apart after Solomon died. Um, and so they're in two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, was exiled by the kingdom of Assyria. And so Israel's long gone. I think this is, uh, let's see. 60 years after Israel's already been exiled. So Judah's the only kingdom left. 
And Judah's having some problems. Now, Judah, Jeremiah begins his reign of preaching ministry during the reign of King Josiah. So Josiah was a good king. He, if you don't know, he rediscovers the law in Judah. Uh, he's a good king. But uh, God says, Jeremiah, or Judah, you've crossed the line. You've crossed the line because there's a king, Manasseh. He followed Israel in their wickedness. If you remember my dad preaching about Elijah's ministry, what was one of the major themes was idolatry and child sacrifice. And that's what Manasseh was doing and leading Judah into. So God says, you've crossed the line. And so Jeremiah begins preaching to Judah. And Jeremiah would preach for about 40 years. And over the course of the 40 years, he would watch Judah not listen to what he had to say. And Judah would go into exile. It's a very uh, sad thing to read about, especially if you know the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah reflects on Judah's destruction. It's a very heartbreaking account. So we'll be in Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. If you have the Green Bible, uh, it's on page 629. If you're having trouble, just flip to the middle of the Bible and keep flipping to the right. Uh, So, if you haven't read the prophets before, though, Jeremiah in this passage is pretty calm compared to other passages. If you don't believe me, you can just read Ezekiel 16 for a pretty brutal uh, passage about what the prophets preach about. So, and in this passage, Jeremiah is going to talk about Israel's great sin, or Judah's great sin. I'm going to confuse those terms. Jeremiah does the same thing. It doesn't matter. But... (laughs) Jeremiah is going to talk about how Judah created, replaced their glorious God for idols. And that's what the big idea in this passage is all about. So, Emily, you can go on the screen. I'll read verses 1 to 3. So, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. So God tells Jeremiah to go and preach to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital city. This is where King Josiah is. This is where the temple is. This is where everybody is. All the important people are here. And in chapter 1, God told Jeremiah, listen, you're going to go preach. The people probably aren't going to listen to you. But you're still going to go preach, and you're not going to be afraid. Because they probably will attack you. If you know anything about the prophets, they were very unpopular. Because they spoke the truth boldly. They spoke about God's uh, judgment that's coming upon Israel if they don't repent. So the prophets weren't popular at all. And in the first part of this message, God remembers how Israel was once faithful to him. Israel is compared to a young bride who loves her husband dearly. God cares for her, bringing her out of slavery in Egypt and bringing her through a wilderness, a desert, a land not sown. There's no life there, but God brings her through it. She was holy and set apart for God, and God protected her from all her enemies. This is God's remembering Israel's uh, faithfulness to him. But if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that this, her faithfulness is very, very short-lived. Israel constantly turns into sin, even weeks after they pass through the Red Sea, what do they do? Moses is on the Mount Sinai getting the law from God, and what are they doing? They're building a golden calf, and Aaron is saying, this is your God who led you out, uh, led you out of Egypt. They quickly abandon Israel. The time of the judges is just this mess of, oh God, 
we aren't going to listen to you anymore. So God punishes them. They're like, oh, no, we sinned against God. Oh, we're so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. They're complaining, complaining. So God sends a judge, a deliverer to help them. And then they repeat the same thing over again. I had a professor uh, in school who describes the book of Judges like a toilet bowl. It just gets worse and worse, just repeating, repeating, repeating. It's just a mess. Um, even King David was unfaithful to God. In his great sin with Bathsheba, tore apart the kingdom. King Solomon, who it looked like Israel was going to be great, and then Solomon forsakes God and starts worshiping idols. But the point is that God is faithful and loving to Israel despite her many, many sins. But now Judah has crossed the line. Israel has been exiled for her many sins. But what has Judah done specifically? So let's read verses 4 to 8. Um, and God's going to start questioning you know, Judah, what are you doing? So hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? Through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and of darkness, A land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. So I just want to paraphrase this little section here. So God's asking, why would Israel stray from me? I've given them everything, but they've gone after worthless idols. Uh, My dad gave me a little note on the Hebrew here. Um, When idols are used in the Old Testament, especially later in Jeremiah, it could be translated as round things. Now, animals leave round things all the time. It's called manure. Um. In other words, Israel has traded God for round things. That is the description Jeremiah is giving us here. God's saying, I'm the one who brought them out of Egypt. I've led them through the barren wilderness. There's nothing in the the desert that you've been to Israel. I don't know who else has been to Israel, but there's nothing there. Um, It's just a, a barren desert. Nobody lives there. I brought them through the wilderness. I gave them manna and water and meat to eat, even though they complained about all that stuff. I brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, even though they refused to go in when I first brought them there. But they have defiled the land. They have broken the law and have spit in my face. Even the very leaders whom I have chosen have abandoned me. And these are the three most important leaders in Israel. The priests who are supposed to serve me daily, they don't know who I am. The kings who are supposed to execute justice, they don't know the law. The prophets speak the words of the false gods. These prophets are claiming to be from God, but they speak the words of the false gods. Israel, and this last question is very important. Israel, what have I done to you that would make you abandon me? And that's important because what God hasn't done anything wrong to them at all. He's only loved and cared for them. He's only brought them out of all their troubles. He's only loved them. And this is what makes Judah's crime all the more heinous, all the more terrible. So Jeremiah, in the next few verses, brings Judah into a courtroom. You can think of the prophets a lot like prosecutors putting Israel on trial for crimes against God. In this case, Judah is the defendant. Judah is being accused of something. 
Jeremiah is the prosecutor. The heavens and the world are the witnesses of seeing this thing happen. And God is the judge. And you don't want God as your judge because God is not impartial. I mean, God is impartial. The charge here is that Judah has exchanged the incorruptible God for worthless idols, for round things. So let's read verses 9 to 13. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See see if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God invites everyone to go and see what Judah has done. But what has Judah done is so shocking. Judah has completely abandoned God in favor of the pagan gods, in favor of round things. They're worthless. He calls them worthless three times in this passage. He says these gods, idols are not gods at all. Judah has given up their glorious and loving God for manure. It's unbelievable. No other nation, though, ever forsakes their gods when they adopt other gods. They simply just bring these gods into their other gods like nothing happens. Think about when the Romans would adopt many of the Greek gods. They would just simply adopt them and bring them on and give them new names. But not Judah. Judah has completely forgotten the one who's brought them out of slavery in Egypt, who brought them through the Red Sea, who who helped them conquer the promised land. They've completely forgotten him. And then now they're worshiping statues that they watched their neighbor carve the other day. It's unbelievable. And look at verse 12. Uh, you put verse 12 up, Emily. Uh, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. What Judah's done is such a great crime that the heavens are supposed to shudder with great horror. It's a terrible thing. Uh, I try to think of a little of an analogy here, and I kind of thought of, say you turn 16 and your parents buy you a brand new Porsche. But you have the bright idea of saying, I don't like this. This isn't fair or this isn't loving. I want to do it my own way. So you trade it for an old junker. Your parents would be angry at you, to say the least. Your friends would make fun of you. It's appalling to do. Um, it's a terrible thing that you would do. But, but Judas does far worse. They traded God. The one who loves them and cares for them for nothing, literally nothing. These idols are worthless. They're nothing. It's manure. And Jeremiah creates a picture for us to consider, verse 13. On the one side, you have God as the fountain or source or spring of living water. And on the other side, you have God, the false gods, as broken cisterns. So God is pictured as a spring. And springs are obviously sources of water. They don't dry up. They will always be full of water. You can always depend on springs. And they're also easy. The water's there. You don't have to do any work to get more water. It's just right there for you to do. Any farmer in the wilderness in Israel, any farmer today, would love to have a spring. You'll never have to worry about running out of water. And the picture is very clear. God will always satisfy our needs no matter what. God is the source of all of our blessings and comforts, both spiritual and physical. He not only has brought them into the land and provided for their needs, but he's made a special covenant with Israel. 
He's revealed to them something special, the very words of God, as Paul says in Romans 3. God alone is the source of all of our blessings. Therefore, he alone is our greatest treasure. He alone is worthy of all of our worship and adoration. He provides for us and loves us deeply. But Judah has chosen to trade him for worthless idols. And these gods are broken cisterns, Jeremiah describes them that. But what are cisterns? So cisterns were holes dug in the ground that people used to hold rainwater. And they were important in times of drought because obviously in the desert it's not going to rain a lot. So when drought came, you had to have a source of water supply so you wouldn't die. And so you could grow your crops. But they were very difficult to maintain these cisterns. And one of the main reasons that they always need constant care and repair because they were liable to break. Uh, one guy I was reading said there's a lot of little tremor earthquakes in Israel that would cause these things to crack. And once they cracked, it became pointless, right? Because if it's draining water, then there's no more water. It's pointless. So you always needed to care for it and make sure it was working properly. But Israel doesn't just trade God for a cistern. No, they trade it for a broken cistern. They trade their fountain of living water for broken cisterns. So they begin to trust in these false gods, these broken cisterns, to hold water and to satisfy them, to sustain them. And cisterns always required, required a lot of work, but now these are broken. So the Israelites are constantly trying to fix them and go to these cisterns to see if they can hold water. And trusting in the false gods is like trusting in a broken cistern, a broken car, a broken anything. It will always fail you no matter how much work you put into it. It's never going to hold any water. It's never going to sustain you. But Judah is always going back to that. Isn't that insane? It's insanity, pure insanity. You keep going back to it. Judah, though, was seeking rest for their souls in something broken. Imagine if I gave you a cup. Andrew's going to know this analogy because we used it in LGP. But if I gave you a cup, started poking holes in it started pouring water in it, then I handed it to you to drink, said, here's your water, you would look at me confused. You'd be angry. You wouldn't have any water. You're not satisfied. You're still thirsty. But that's what Judah was doing. They exchanged their glorious God for a created thing. A flat-out lie, as Paul says in Romans 125. Romans 125. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Rather than resting in God, the fountain of living water who provides for all our needs, we yearn for idols. It's crazy, though. But we do, we're doing the same thing Judah does in our daily lives, and we do this as well. But wait, we don't go, we don't cut down a tree and carve an idol, we don't get rocked and sculpt out an idol. It's true, we don't do that. When we think of idolatry, we really just think about Israel dancing around the golden calf, and Moses coming down and breaking the Ten Commandments, or Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal as they're screaming in the sky, hoping that rain comes. That's what we think about. We think about people uh, sitting in front of an idol, the Hindu gods, people praying to these idols. That's what we think about when we think of idolatry. But that physical idol is really a picture of something far more deeper. It's a picture of us, man, seeking ultimate meaning in something other than God. It's us placing all of our adoration and intention towards a created thing over God himself. We don't need to create a statue and bow down to it and pray to it for it to be an idol. You don't need to do that. You don't need to bow down to new technology today for it to be an idol. Because we create it all the time. 
And really, an idol is when we take a part of God's creation and we're treasuring it above God himself. It's when we, or it's when we place our hope in something uh, and we're placing our hope that it can provide satisfaction and rest for us. The idols we create can be out of good things as well. And that's where it's very challenging for us because we can take anything and make it an idol. It could be loved ones. It could be a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a child, a work, your hobbies, your activities, anything. And the temptation is everywhere. And Judah traded God, and they sought to find comfort and satisfaction in Baal and the false gods. And we're tempted and probably guilty. I'd be like my dad, but nobody here is guilty. <laughs> but we're probably guilty of taking something and making it our purpose. It's really we create something and we can't imagine our lives without it. Our lives wouldn't be worth living if we didn't have this thing. And there are obvious idols in the world that we can see clearly. But we can see external idols that people promise happiness because of money and power and wealth and whatever. Those are obvious idols. Just as Baal, Baal is an obvious idol. You could see it. But what's going on in the heart? And many of our idols are from within. Um. John Calvin, the reformer, once said that our hearts are like idol factories, that we continually create idols. We continually try to replace God with something. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And in verse six, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these sins are from the heart. They're within. And greed, you know, greed isn't seen. And evil desire is not seen. So it's harder to pick out where is it coming from. Where am I creating this idol? And Paul specifically describes greed as idolatry. This greed is coveting something we don't have. And this greed is never satisfied. This idolatry in this heart, this seeking to replace God with something, it's never satisfied. It's always yearning to usurp God. And when we think of idols we've created within our heart, in order to discover them, we have to ask ourselves some questions in order to identify them. Because if you don't really, like, because the obvious external idols are easy to see. But what's really going on in the heart? What is driving you? You know, like something like sports, your career, your family, your friends, politics, social media, whatever. Those are obvious. But what's really driving that? You have to get to the heart of the problem. Because if you don't get to the heart of it, you can't truly deal with it. So you've got to ask yourself, you know, what's driving you in life? What drives me in life? Are you never satisfied? An idol, think about an idol, it can never be satisfied. And you never actually fully possess it. Because an idol is a lie. It tries to play God, but it can never do that. And it, you can never satisfy it. You ask yourself, why are you angry, depressed, anxious? When trials come our way, what is our response to it? I was just talking to my brother Josh as we were painting, and we were talking about how when his barn burned down, his first reaction was just pure anger, frustration. And then he had to stop and think, wait a minute, why am I so angry? And he was thinking because he was so concerned just about his stuff. He said he thought he was just getting too materialistic, just so concerned about his stuff. And all his other, it was always about his stuff. And he had to realize but that is not the proper reaction to that because he was just so concerned about what he had. Instead of remembering that God was in control and he thought maybe God's trying to get uh, 
got me to pay attention to something in my life. That's a very common idol. Are we yearning for control over our lives? Are we yearning for comfort above all things, for acceptance? Are we driven by our pride and need to be better than others? A very popular one today is we're driven by our need to rest in some identity. You know, younger people, I see people my age at school, wherever, it's very sad to see, but they're driven by, by their need to identify with something, such as their sexuality or even their mental disorders. They have to identify with it. They're driven to this, though, because they're seeking to rest in it, because you rest in your identity. You rest in something. You want to be just at peace. And that's what we're doing with an idol. And that's the heart of idolatry is what are you resting in? What are you hiding in? Where do you look for, for protection? But the great irony behind idolatry is that it only enslaves you. The idols only enslave you. As much as they promise us rest and comfort, as much as oh, wanting to be in control will promise you, oh, if I just really want to be in control and I get in control, then I'll feel better. As much as promising as that sounds, it only enslaves you. Because remember Jeremiah's picture. They're broken cisterns, these idols. They can never satisfy. It's always draining water. There's no satisfaction. And cisterns, they require work. Constant repair, constant care. And our idols demand constant affection, and they split our hearts. We become enslaved to them. For example, I already brought up control, but if you're always looking for control over your life, and when things don't go your way, and you become angry or depressed or whatever, you have to ask yourself, why am I so angry? Because you're yearning for control, something you can never have. And that's where the lie comes in, because you're always disappointed and frustrated because you can't satisfy the idol control because you're not God. Only, and we're trying to play God. We're refusing to live by faith. You see, an idol is a lie. The idol of control is a lie because you're trying to control something, something you can never do ever as a person. So many people have tried to control their lives, take over, control whatever. But what happens to them? They're all dead. They can't do it. Any dictator tries to control their country in such a strict manner, it can never happen. Even controlling the circumstances around your life. You get sick. You can't control that. You can't control the death of a loved one. You can't control these things, so you get angry. But you have been seeking to find rest and uh, protection in control. You're trying to control everything, but you can't. And we turn to our idols for rest. We're trying to patch up our broken cisterns while the spring of living water invites us to rest. And that's the real insanity behind all this, because God is inviting us to rest in the spring of living water. What we go somewhere else. We try so hard. We work so hard on our broken cisterns while God is inviting us to rest. And it's so foolish because we miss the point of our existence when we turn to idols. Because the goal of our lives is not to live for ourselves. It's, to, it's for God. We're created for God. And we're created to glorify Him, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And when we try to live our lives apart from that, the seeds of idolatry grow. It's when we forget that God created us for Him. So we start to create these idols to replace Him. It's when we forget that, wait, God's the one who protects and cares for us. When we forget that, we then start turning to other things to protect us. And this can happen anywhere. And one thing I thought of, one example, and there's a million I could think of, 
But for the sake of time, and everybody would be bored if I just kept rattling this off, uh, one is when we envision God. And this is where a serious idol can really harm our lives because sometimes we envision God as just so loving and caring um, and we don't really think about his anger or, or his holiness. We don't really think about it. And so we create this false picture of God that he doesn't really care about our sin. And we do that, and that's harming our relationship with him. But in the opposite end, sometimes I think, I know I'm more prone to this. I'm sure we're probably more prone to this as Christians is we envision God as just this wrathful, angry God who's ready to strike us because of our sin. And this false picture of God offers us no comfort. It's these false pictures of God, these lies that cut us off from him. And it doesn't take long to realize that we create idols all the time. We need to be on alert at all times because of idolatry. In Psalm 16, I think David creates a very good contrast for those who live their lives for their idols and those who live their lives for God. Those who drank out of the spring of living water and those who try to drink out of a broken cistern. So in, in 16.4, he says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. But in verse 11, he says, "You." This is David talking about God. He says, and this is a picture. The first one is, your sorrows will increase if you try to drink out of the broken cisterns. But if you turn to the fountain of living water, David says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, where are we, go, where are we going to for, to for rest? Are we going to turn to our idols and always be yearning for something more? Or are we going to turn to God who offers us true rest for our souls? As I was thinking, I like to think of historical examples about this. And I thought of the church father, Augustine. If you know anything about Augustine's life, he tried uh, looking for idols everywhere and anywhere but God. Uh, he was born, his father wasn't a Christian, but his mother was. And his mother um, always prayed for Augustine every single day of his life until he became a Christian. And Augustine, reflecting on his life, he, he once said, he says, You, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Let me say that again. You, God, have made us for yourself. So we're created for God. And our hearts are restless until we rest in you. We're always going to be restless until we rest in God. And that's what Augustine thought uh, when he was 18 or 19. He went off to school in the ancient city of Carthage. And he indulged in all sorts of sins a young uh, college can get into. He later tried to find meaning in a cultic group called the Manichaeans. But they couldn't offer him what he wanted. He later went to the philosophers who studied Plato. And he said, you guys, do you have meaning? And he kept going, and ultimately there was nothing there. He wasn't satisfied. Then he started going to church um, in the ancient Italian city of Milan. He starts going to church, and he hears the Bishop Ambrose preach. And he's like, wait a minute. Christianity makes sense intellectually. I understand it. I think it's true. But he said, he, Augustine said he still had so much sin in his heart that he still clung to. These idols he still clung to. And of his conversion story, he tells of a time he was in the garden. He's in the garden, he's sitting there, he's moping, he's praying, all these things. And he hears these children singing a song while he's in the garden. They're singing, take up, they're singing in the song, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine has right in front of him his Bible. He's got his Bible, so he says he just, he basically went like this. He just opened it up at random, and he happens to turn to Romans 13. And in Romans 13, Paul says this. 
Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. And Augustine says after he read that, it was like a burden came off his back, like in the Pilgrim's Progress when Christian's burden comes off his back. Burden, all the doubts vanished. He'd become a Christian. He had finally turned to God for rest. He realized he had to give up his sin. And in our battles against our various idols, we need to realize that we have to turn to Jesus. Because this world promises all sorts of satisfaction. We're always yearning for something more. And I think that's what Augustine really got at. Because humans, we're not like animals. In some senses, we are. We, a lot of us sometimes act like animals. But sometimes, but we're not animals. Because what are animals satisfied with? They're satisfied with living, killing, reproducing until death. That's what animals do. You watch, that's all animals do. But we as humans know there's something far greater out there. We're always yearning for that ultimate pleasure, that rest. Because you feel it in your heart. This, you're just restless. As Augustine really got at the fact that we are restless until we turn to God. And when we look for that rest, we always look in every wrong place. We turn to anything and everything but the one who has created us. In this pursuit, we forget God's love and care for us. Because we pursue idols, these broken cisterns to satisfy us, only to realize that we just become slaves to them. But God hasn't left us to be enslaved. And I think a good parallel to Jeremiah 2 is John 4. And in John 4, Jesus picks up on Jeremiah's language, but he applies it to himself. And in this passage, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. The problem with this passage is that the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But Jesus is talking to this woman. And not only that, but this woman was an adulterous woman in the presence of Jesus, the Holy One of God. But as they're talking, Jesus doesn't just offer judgment on her. No, he offers her grace and salvation. He says in 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. So the, Jesus and the woman are talking at a well. Um, and Jesus saying, whoever just keeps drinking out of this well, you're going to be thirsty again. The same with the cistern, the broken cistern. You just be thirsty. It will never satisfy you. But Jesus says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus is offering us something. Because when we come to Jesus, we have true rest. Rest from our sin and rest from worries and everything in this life. And we have two simple options. We can drink from the fountain of living water and always be satisfied. Because it's a spring. It's not going to cost us anything. We go there and drink freely of it. Or we can turn aside and reject God's love for us. And we can look and build broken cisterns for ourselves. And try to find rest for our souls in manure. Or we can turn to God. Remember, idols are everywhere. And an idol, again, is when you take something and you put all your trust and confidence in it. It's something you seek to rest in apart from God. And, of course, the great irony is that the idol just enslaves you. You can never satisfy it. Again, we talked about the way to deal with the idols is to really just probe your heart and ask yourself questions. What's driving you in life? Where do you run for, for protection? You're never satisfied. I think the best way to think of the idol is what are you resting in? What are you seeking to find comfort and rest in and protection in? And above all, we need to remember who God is. 
Because Israel's greatest problem, if you read the Old Testament, is that they always forget who God is. That's why they go after other idols. While Moses is on the Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, Israel already forgot who their God was. God was leading them uh, by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire through the wilderness. And, and they brought him through the Red Sea. And they already forgot who he was that quickly. But we do the same thing. We lose sight of that God is the spring of all of our blessings. And that we were created for him. And we turn out, because we forget that, we lose the sight of God. That he's the one who's offering us rest. But we try to create rest for ourselves. And it only produces sorrow, as David says. I'm going to, as Jesus, I just want to close with what Jesus says again. Because I think it's a very good summary of what I've been trying to talk about here. But Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You'll always be thirsty if you keep yearning for other things in life. If you keep trying to find satisfaction and rest outside of God, you'll always be thirsty. You'll always be restless. And that's what we see with this world. People don't know where to turn to. So they turn to drugs. They turn to sex. They turn to wealth and money and anything and everything but God. They create these idols because they're yearning for rest. But Jesus says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the living water you offer us, that in you we have the forgiveness of sins, that in you we no longer walk in darkness, but we can live a true life, that we can rest in you. We just pray that you convict us of the idols in our heart, that you would reveal them to us and that we may lay them down at the cross where we have true forgiveness of sins. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.